Hello and welcome back to A Head Full of Ideas. This is Chris Gregory here. In any autobiographical or analytical work on Bob Dylan, the name of Joan Baez is bound to loom large. In the early 60s, they were known as the King and Queen of Folk. They played together and Baez has recorded a great number of Dylan songs over the last few decades. Today I want to concentrate on what is really a a very little-known piece of work by Bob Dylan, uh, which appeared on the cover of Joan Baez in Concert, Volume 2, in 1963. It was in the original edition of Bob Dylan's Writings and Drawings lyric book, um, but doesn't seem to have appeared in the recent ones, which is really a great shame. Um, So I thought it was worth bringing this poem to light. It really does say a lot about Bob Dylan and his development. So this is called Beauty is Truth, Bob Dylan's Poem to Joni. The pursuit and definition of beauty has been one of the major concerns of poets throughout the ages. In perhaps his best known poem, Sonnet 18, Shakespeare asks if it is wise to compare the object of his love to a summer's day, which despite all its glories will inevitably fade away. But he declares that even when his lover ages, thy eternal summer shall not fade. Shelley's hymn to intellectual beauty personifies the spirit of beauty as giving meaning and purpose to life. Thou dost consecrate with thine own hues, all thou dost shine upon of human thought or form, but laments its essential transience, asking, Where art thou gone? Why dost thou pass away and leave our state, this dim vast veil of tears, vacant and desolate? In his early years, Bob Dylan produced a number of lengthy compositions which adorned his own album sleeves and those of some of his close compatriots in the folk world. Those works were often scatological, full of random thoughts and images, and were rarely as carefully written or even as poetic as his songs. After writing Like a Rolling Stone in 1965, he largely abandoned such efforts although he was still to produce some pertinent, provocative and witty prose pieces as sleeve notes in future albums. Poem to Joni, as it is usually known, which first appeared on the sleeve of Joan Byers's In Concert, Volume 2, 1963, is, along with Last Thoughts on Woody Guthrie, which was read aloud at the end of Dylan's New York Town Hall concert in 1963, his most focused attempt at on-the-page poetry, consciously drawing on various poetic traditions. Significantly, both of these long poems are musical in form. As well as both being tributes to musicians, they make conscious, if sometimes rather random, use of rhyme schemes and rhythm. Both could conceivably be performed with musical backing. Dylan's style here is heavily influenced by Ginsberg and the beat poets, especially in its heavy use of colloquialisms and his attempt to communicate with an audience using heartfelt emotion rather than the technical compression common in modernist 20th century poetry. As with the poetry of the Beats, the expansive and generous figure of Walt Whitman looms over the work. Poem to Joni is also very consciously influenced by Romanticism. Its main theme is how the poet, who claims that he had grown up to see value only in harsh depictions of reality, comes to appreciate the value of beauty through his encounter with the astonishing purity of the singing of Joan Baez. 
There are echoes of Byron's She Walks in Beauty, the notorious 19th century romantic poet's seductive description of a very beautiful female who walks in beauty like the night of cloudless climes and starry skies, and whose mind is at peace with all below, a heart whose love is innocent. On a more philosophical level, Dylan's poem recalls Keats's Ode on a Grecian Urn, which reflects that its idealised figures, though long passed away, have achieved a kind of immortality, and famously concludes with the ultimate romantic manifesto, Beauty is Truth and Truth Beauty, that is all you know on earth and all you need to know. Poem to Joni has eight verses of varying length and has some elements of the spontaneous automatic writing favoured by the beats. But it is carefully structured and very focused on its central themes and concerns. Its remarkably evocative opening verse begins with a decidedly Whitmanesque image of a young boy watching trains go by and rather angrily pulling up the grass and throwing it on the tracks. In my youngest years I used to kneel by my aunt's house on a railroad field and yank the grass out of the ground and rip savagely at its roots and pass the hours counting strands and stains a green grew on my hands. Here Dylan immediately presents us with a vivid symbolic picture. The boy feels a savage energy inside himself which he does not really understand. He stares obsessively down at his hands, trying, it seems, to come to grips with his own motivations. We may contrast this with a passage from Whitman's Song of Myself, in which a child presents a poet with a handful of grass. Whitman considers its symbolic qualities. The child said, What is the grass? Fetching it to me with full hands. How could I answer the child? I do not know what it is any more than he. I guess it must be the flag of my disposition, out of hopeful green stuff woven. Or I guess it is the handkerchief of the Lord, a scented gift and remembrancer designedly dropped, bearing the owner's name some way in the corners, that we may see and remark and say, whose? Or I guess the grass is itself a child, the produced babe of the vegetation. Or I guess it is a uniform hieroglyphic, and it means sprouting alike in broad zones and narrow zones, growing among the black folks as among white. Canuck, Tuckahoe, Congressman, Cuff, I give them the same, I receive them the same, and now it seems to me the beautiful uncut hair of graves. Thus Whitman turns the grass into a symbol of God's handiwork in creating natural beauty. Later it becomes a symbol of childhood itself, and then of racial equality, and then of the naturalness and inevitability of death. One is reminded of Dylan's line from It's All Right Now, I'm Only Bleeding. To those who think death's honesty won't fall upon them naturally, life sometimes must get lonely. In Poem to Joni, the boy appears to be filled with anger, which he takes out on the beauty of nature, but in fact he is only killing time. The tracks in hum and I bite my lip and I hold my grip as the whistle whined, crouching low as the engine growled, I'd shyly wave to the throttle man and count the cars as they rolled past. But when the echo faded in the day and I understood, the train was gone. It is as if the boy is experiencing no enjoyment of his own childhood innocence. He seems to be restlessly waiting to grow up impatiently counting the trains just as he counts the strands of grass. 
Here, Dylan marries a wistful, Shelley-esque romanticism with the imagery of the blues and country music, in which trains symbolise many things, especially escape from confinement and personal freedom. The boy stares down at the green stains on his hands, which he describes as being like blood. He then looks down at the barren patch of ground he has created, and at first he feels guilty that he has destroyed a living thing. But then he reasons to himself that, I'm sure the grass don't give a damn. Anyway, it'll grow again, and what's a patch of grass, anyhow? Then he angrily flings a stone across the railway line. He can, however, still hear the echo of the train, hanging heavy like a thundercloud. He imagines that its echoes will persist until the next day's dawn. In the first of a series of rather randomly placed choruses, he expresses the essential loneliness of the poetic soul, which as a child he feels with raw, demonic intensity. And I asked myself to be my friend, and I walked my road like a frightened fox, and I sung my song like a demon child, with a kick and a curse from inside my mother's womb. In a 2005 interview in Martin Scorsese's documentary, No Direction Home, Dylan explains his rather mystical belief that he was born in the wrong place. The young Dylan in the poem cannot wait to ride that train into his future. Here he claims to be dissatisfied with his life even before he was born, asserting that he possesses a dangerous power which presumably could, if not properly harnessed, turn him into a destructive person with little regard for the lives of others. He describes his adolescence as one in which this inner demonic power began to make him bitter and enraged. I back so far away from the world's walls and friendless games that I did not have a word to say to anyone who'd meet my eyes. Dylan also describes how, in his childhood embrace of ugliness, he chooses appropriate heroes who express the dark side of life. He calls Hank Williams his first hero, praising his songs about railway lines which he describes as filled with stink and certain dust. Williams's most celebrated songs like Your Cheatin' Heart, I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry and Cold Cold Heart are riveting examinations of the pain of heartbreak. Later, his idols fall when he realises that they're only human like everyone else. Anytime he hears words that others think are beautiful, he finds that they struck my guts but now with a more shameful sound. Later, as a young singer in New York, the only beauty he can find is the hard, filthy gutter sound, which he finds in the cracks and curbs, clothed in robes and dust and grime. Dylan then begins to explain the effect of encountering a girl I met on common ground who, like me, strummed lonesome tunes. His friends tell him the girl's voice is lovely and a thing of beauty, but at first he declares that he hates that kind of sound. The only beauty's ugly, man. The cracking, shaking, breaking sounds are the only beauty I understand. He meets the girl and they get on well. But when preparing himself to hear her sing for the first time, a fence comes up in his mind as he tells himself there ain't no voice but an ugly voice. He declares that, like the stone he threw across those railroad tracks as a young boy, he needs to feel the timbre of the voice with his hand. Thus he is very resistant to accepting the beauty in her voice until he perceives some actual physical effect. 
And then in the poem's shortest verse, which ends its most devastating line, he gives a graphic description of a horrific incident which the girl tells him had occurred to her while she was living in an Arab land during her childhood. And she told me of the dogs she saw slaughtered wholly on the street, and I learned how the people laugh as they beat the gentle dogs to death. Here, the juxtaposition of innocence, represented by that resonant phrase, gentle dogs, against the ugliness of extreme cruelty, strikes a chord in him. The whole of the next verse is a meditation on this story, in which the poet imagines himself as one of the children who tried and failed to hide one of the dogs. He realises that this incident occurred at the same time as him killing the grass in the first verse. He is overcome by a strange feeling of guilt, as if the girl's experience of the awful event is somehow his fault. He experiences a strange kind of transference, in which the two figures' youthful expressions somehow gel. This causes him to open his mind to listening to the beauty in her voice, although at first he dismisses this, reiterating that he should kill those thoughts. They ain't no good, only uglies understood. It is in the sixth and longest verse that his revelation occurs. He is sitting on the floor of a painter's house in the artistic community in Woodstock, smoking and drinking and feeling relaxed. Then, without warning, the girl bursts into pure song with no musical accompaniment. Although he tries to resist, the wall in his mind, previously a fence, begins to fall. All at once the silent air split open from her sounding voice, without no warning from her lips, and by instinct my blood reversed and I shook and started reaching for the wall that was supposed to fall. But my resting nerves weren't restless now, and this time they wouldn't jump. Let her voice ring out, they cried. We're too tired to stop her sing. Now his resistance is crumbling. He describes how his face freezes and the time floated by. He calls her one of those who have taught him not about themselves, but about me. He laughs a crazy laugh, rests on his elbows, and eventually passes out, experiencing unchallenged dreams. When he wakes, he realises that he had been wrong in thinking that beauty could only be found in ugliness. Now beauty becomes a, a magic wand that weaves and teases of my mind. Listening to the girl's pure crystal tones is a road to Damascus moment for him. Many years later, in Chronicles, he describes Baez as singing in a voice straight to God. Here, the feeling he experiences is expressed in random ecstatic imagery, mostly related to different musical instruments. For the breeze I heard in the young girl's breath proved true as sex and womanhood and deep as the lowest depths of death, and as strong as the weakest winds that blow, and as long as fate and fatherhood, and like gypsy drums and Chinese gongs and cathedral bells and tones of chimes, it just held hymns for mystery, and mysteries all too involved. His only regret is that this revelation has taken so long to happen. In the final verse, he states his intention to return us to the railroad track of his childhood. He pledges not to rip up the grass this time. Instead, he will count the strands of grass 
and petted as a friend. He will wave at the engineer as the train goes by and shout at him, Tell him Joni says hello, and delight in the man's incomprehension. Then, recalling his younger self as a rock-throwing devil child, he pledges that he will still sing my song like a rebel wild, but that he will no longer cause hurt, not to push, not to ache, and God knows, not to try. It seems that the epiphany he has experienced when listening to Joni has resolved a deep inner conflict. He no longer feels he has to push his way through life, and from now on he will not feel compelled to seek out only the cracking, breaking, shaking sounds. It is ironic that one of the reasons Dylan and Baez parted as a romantic couple was that Baez, having played a part in the civil rights movement in the early 1960s, would become increasingly politicised and was very disappointed that Dylan no longer wished to join her as an activist. Just as Dylan's experience of Baez seems to have helped him come to terms with his inner demons, she had been inspired by his political songs like With God on Our Side, Masters of War, Blowing in the Wind, The Times They Are A-Changing and A Hard Rains Are Gonna Fall, which she would perform in concert or on political marches. Many of those who found Dylan's voice too harsh preferred her perfectly enunciated renditions of these songs in which she magically transformed the anger that motivated them through her own unique and timeless, beautiful perspective. Dylan had turned out perhaps the most powerful political songs anyone had ever composed, but after his acceptance of what Shelley called her intellectual beauty, he lost interest in this kind of material. Their encounter, whatever its romantic implications, thus clearly affected the trajectories of both of their careers. Her liaison with Dylan shifted her from being mainly a purveyor of traditional folk songs to becoming the embodiment of protest itself. In contrast, Dylan's songs that followed from the Another Side album onwards were marked by compassion, surreal humour and complex internal examinations of consciousness, but eschewed political comment. It seems that she absorbed some of his righteous anger, while he, through his acceptance of her beauty, purged much of that anger from his own heart. Poem to Joni is Dylan's most explicit consideration of the value of their relationship to the development of his work. It is also a moving philosophical meditation on the meaning of beauty and its significance in art. Okay, well I hope you enjoyed that. You can find more of my work on chrisgregory.org, the website, and you should find a text version of this particular episode um, hopefully it's up by now it would be great if you could uh, subscribe to this podcast and you can also follow me on facebook and instagram and twitter if you put in search from the pen of chris gregory which is the name of my website in the next podcast we'll be looking at one of my favorite dylan cover versions I shan't tell you what it is, but hopefully see you then. Bye.